You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Thank you once again for joining us this Sunday as we have our Facebook Live's worship service once again. We'll be in the book of 1 Timothy as we have been in for, this is the second week. Just to recap very quickly what we got into last week, we established that Paul is writing this letter of 1 Timothy to his son in the ministry, someone who was a son, like a son to him, uh, and now is a pastor at Ephesus whose name is Timothy. We established that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to encourage him to make sure that the church there in Ephesus was living out its calling as a buttress and pillar of truth, that the church is to stand for truth, contend for the truth, fight for the truth, that it it greatly benefits the church and the forward progress of the kingdom of God when the people of God contend for truth. There were those in Ephesus who were spreading false doctrines and false teachings, many much like what we hear today. Anytime we hear someone communicate something that is contrary to the Word of God, contrary to the gospel, it is a false doctrine. And as a church, we are to speak truth where there is error and where there is false doctrine. We establish that when we do this, it actually allows us to live in the type of love that we are called to. It allows us to grow as followers of Jesus and love the way that He loved. Today, we'll get more into some of the specifics of the type of false teaching that Timothy was to combat. What were these false teachers? What were these false doctrines that were being communicated? We'll get it started in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll get it started in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll work our way through verse 17. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, making our way through verse 17. I'll read verses 6 and 7. These are two verses that we read last week as well. Certain persons, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, it's important to know, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So, so these, these false teachers, those who are spreading these, this false doctrine, they wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand the law. They didn't understand the purpose of the law. They didn't want to understand what the law was really all about. And they're making these confident assertions, even though they don't understand what they're actually talking about. Now, the law that Paul is referring to here is what many know as the Mosaic law. We find it's given in the Old Testament. We see it in Exodus and Numbers. We see it in Deuteronomy. We see it in Leviticus, where God basically wants to communicate to this people that have committed themselves to him what it meant to actually follow him, what it meant to actually live in relationship with him, they had been in Egypt and likely were forced to worship false gods, so they didn't know the one true God. So God gives them the law so they know what it is to actually be a follower of his. The law is a collection of laws and regulations set up for the Jewish people by God before Christ. What was happening in the church is that certain teachers 
have come in and begun to be obsessed with what Paul calls myths and endless genealogies. These are likely genealogies of, of ancient Israelite kings as they were debating back and forth the, the, the intricacies of the genealogies. And they were taking many of the teachings of, teachings of Judaism and saying that all who come to faith and believe in Christ must, must learn these things and must follow these things. They have many speculations about different things concerning Old Testament texts. And they were also adding and twisting the text, doing what they wanted with these Jewish teachings, particularly aspects of the Old Testament Israelite law. So they were twisting things, doing whatever they wanted to do. Paul calls them out on it. He says that they don't know what they're saying and that they're talking about these things that is actually causing more problems than it is good. So obviously he tells Timothy to quiet them down. So Paul is going to, in these, in these verses, do two main things. Number one, he's going to help us understand what the law is and what the law does and specifically highlight one purpose of the law that we'll get into. And he's also going to to share about Jesus Christ through his own personal testimony to illustrate how the law and the grace of God actually work together. So again, he's going to start by explaining a bit about the law. Let's look at verse 8 as Paul teaches about the law of God. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. He's saying, hey, this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone, but the law is good. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing as long as it's used in the proper way. Paul isn't saying, I'm against the law. He's saying, I'm against the law being used in improper ways. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The law isn't what is the problem here. It's these teachers who are using the law in wrong ways, in false ways. Way. So how should we understand the law? How is the law used in the Bible? What is the purpose of the law that we see in the Bible? Number one, for uses of the law, number one, we see that the law has the purpose of restraining sin. It has the purpose of restraining sin. That Christian or non-Christian would know more of what God calls us to as his people who he created to live and follow him. One of its functions is it restrains sin. Now, it doesn't change our hearts, but it does restrain sin to some degree. For example, if you think about the speed limit, it's a law that's put out there. People in general don't follow it to a T, but it probably decreases the amount of, of unnecessary reckless speeding that people do. Right? It doesn't have the power to make people slow down, but when you combine the law with some amount of accountability, it probably decreases the amount of recklessness that's going on on the road. And this is what the law does. It lets us know what we should do, and hopefully it decreases the amount of sin that is present, even though it doesn't have the power to change our hearts. The regulations and the restrictions don't change us in and of themselves. So the law has a purpose of restraining sin, It also has the purpose of teaching God's good will. It has the purpose of teaching God's good will. The law, see, the law is an outworking of God's character. His laws teach us how to live the way that he intended life to be lived. It teaches sinful people what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. One thing that you'll want to notice and note about the, the term good is it's, generally speaking, when it's used, it's a relative term. The term good is, is, is relative. It always needs a standard. For example, if you were to ask me, Aunt, are you a good father? My first thought would be, well, I mean, you probably could find some people that if you compare me to them, 
I would probably look like a good father. You could probably find some other people. And if you compare me to them, I probably wouldn't look as much like a good father. And I know if you compare me to God, I definitely don't look like a good father. So what, what you are calling me or calling me to respond to and asking me, am I a good father, is relative to whatever you're saying the standard is. Goodness is always measured according to a standard. In order for there to be true goodness in the world, there has to be a standard of goodness. There has to be something that says this is what good actually is and everything else is not good. Any designation of something good has to be in comparison to the standard. And biblically, we see that God is the standard of goodness. And his law obviously reflects that. Psalm 89, 14 says it this way, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Righteousness, justice, goodness, doing what is good, doing what is right is the foundation of your reign. It's the foundation of your your authority and your reign and rule over all of creation. The creator establishes what is actually good. And anything that is good is only good to the degree that it actually reflects the creator and reflects God himself. The only way someone is good is if they are like God. So the law shows us what is truly good. It shows us how to be good straight from the mouth of the author of goodness himself, who is God. I know that I'm not the world's best father, but I do know that a good father, if he can, will give good instruction to his children. And if possible, can, will provide some amount of accountability for those children to help raise them, to help teach them how to go, to to help teach them what is good and what is not good. And this is what God does for us through his law. The law is a window into who our God actually is as he uses it to teach us his good will. The third purpose of the law that I want to point out is that the law exposes our sinfulness. The law exposes our sinfulness. It's not just a window that allows us to see into who our God is. It's also a mirror that allows us to see how we're measuring up to the standard. It doesn't just help us to see God. It also helps us to see ourselves because the law is an outworking of God's goodness. Because of that, when we see it, we all see that we are not good in and of ourselves. We do not meet the standard. And that's what a standard is supposed to do. It's supposed to help us determine what is good and what is not. And one of, one of the things that the law does is it gives us accurate feedback about how good we actually are. It gives us accurate, accurate excuse me, feedback about the fact that we do not measure up to the standard. One time I heard a Christian say, Well, I don't think God would give us laws that we can't keep. That doesn't make sense to me. I said, I don't think God would give us laws that we can't keep. That doesn't make sense to me. Here's the thing. God's standard, God's laws are not based on our ability to measure up to his standard. It's based off of who he is and his character. God's standard is, is not lowered. He doesn't diminish his, his standard based on how good we are. No, no, no. He is who he is. The law comes out of who he is, and he, he does not diminish or decrease or compromise his standard when he shows us what it is to actually be like him. That wouldn't be good. 
That wouldn't give us accurate feedback for how we're actually doing at being good because if the standard is compromised, then anybody can make the standard whatever they desire for it to be. But there has to be true good, and that is God. When we see his standards, those standards provide for us an accurate view into our hearts, into our minds, and into our actions as well. The law shows us that we are all sinners, no matter how many good things you do. No matter, no matter how much good you find yourself doing, we are all sinners. We have all broken God's laws. We all fall short. I want to look at a few verses in Romans chapter 3. I'll pick up halfway through verse 10 and read through verse 12, and then we'll jump down a little bit. But verse 10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We'll move on to verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law makes us aware of our sin. And so when we, when we look at the law, we can realize that we can't be justified by this because all of us are law breakers. Verse 23 sums it up. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is the standard and none of us measure of. We have all fallen short of his standard. We have all turned away. We've all broken his commandments. We've all loved sin when we should have hated it. We've all clung to it when we should have cut it off. We have loved lesser things more than we have loved the God who loves us more than anyone or anything else has ever loved us. We are all sinners who have committed evil acts against God and against others, and that goes for everyone. That goes for the person that you look up to in this world more than anybody else. None of us measure up to his standards. No matter how much good we do, it doesn't change the fact that we are sinners. The law accomplishes its purpose in revealing this to us. And Paul talks about the law in this way, beginning in verse 9. where he reads, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners. Paul was making the point that the law wouldn't have had to be given if everyone was just. If everyone was actually good, we wouldn't need God's laws to come and instruct us. But the reason we need the law, specifically for this third purpose of the law, is so that our sin might be revealed to us. He says the law is for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for the sinners. And then to make this point, he points out some specific types of ungodliness and sin that we have, which show us that the law is made for each one of us. Let's continue reading in verse 9. He says, for the unholy and profane. That word profane means like, means like irreligious, completely, complete disregard for, for God and his ways and holiness. It says, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers. Paul begins this specific list of, of types of sins that we commit or, or, or the type of sinful people that we are by speaking directly to violence. Paul says that those who are violent, in some even to the point of murder, Paul says that these are people that the law is made for. Those that don't value the lives of others as they should, who don't value the lives of others as much as they value their own life. So they are willing to take their, their, their anger to violence even 
As Paul points out here in verse 9, even to those that they should love the most. Paul says that the law is made for those who are violent. But he goes on, verse 10, he says also the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. That the law is for the sexually immoral as well. It's not just made for those who are violent, but also for those who don't hold to God's view of sexuality, who don't hold to this sound doctrine. Those that don't hold to any biblical doctrine that that sexual activity is to be enjoyed as a sacred gift of God between a a married man and a married woman. That can be with someone of the same sex or someone of a different sex. If we don't hold to God's view of being able to enjoy the sacred gift of marriage between a married man and a sacred gift of sex, excuse me, between a married man and a married woman, Paul says the law is made for us because it reveals to us our sin. Biblically speaking, that sin can mean engaging in physical sexual activity with someone you're not married to, or it can mean engaging in lustful fantasies with someone that's not your spouse. These are sexually immoral things that the law reveals to us. It's immoral because it does not hold to sound doctrine of sexuality given to us by God. Biblically speaking, it doesn't just... The law doesn't just prevent us from having sex with people that we aren't married to, but sexual sin and sexual immorality can also mean refusing to engage in sexual activity with someone you are married to. This is biblical doctrine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul writes that part of the unity between a married man and a married woman is that their bodies no longer belong to each other. They now share their bodies As married people, our bodies don't just belong to us. Paul is is, is labeling out or showing us these different sins that, that, that reveal to us the need for the law because the law reveals to us what is actually sin. The next thing he says is enslavers. I don't have a lot of time to put any focus on this, but some people try to discredit the Bible by saying the Bible never calls capturing people and selling them into slavery as sin. Paul right here says that this is actually one of the reasons the law is written is because this is a sin. If someone tells you that, take them to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Moving on. Next, he refers to our dishonesty and our deceitfulness. He calls out liars and perjurers. He's saying the law is for the dishonest. Liars are obviously those who lie to people. Perjurers are those that lie before some type of court or official proceeding. He's referring to those that can't be depended upon 100% of the time throughout their lives, no matter the circumstances and what it might cost them to always tell the truth. He's saying the law is for those who can't be depended on 100% of the time, no matter the situation, to tell the truth. The law is for the dishonest. Paul's saying the law is for those that would bend the truth maybe to a police officer to try to get out of a ticket. It's for those that have put something on their taxes that isn't 100% true so that they can get a little bit more money back. It's for those that would justify their lying by saying, well, it's not hurting anyone or that it's just a little lie. It's for those that will lie to bosses or employees or coworkers about how much work they've done to try to make themselves seem like they're doing a, a, a wonderful job on the job. It's for those who might call into work and claim to be sick when they're not actually sick. It's for those that lie about why they're late or why they didn't do what they were supposed to do so that people won't think less of them. It's for those that tend to bend the truth just a little bit 
when they're sharing a difficult situation or maybe an argument that they've had with someone else. And whenever they share the story, they always paint the story like they're the one in the right and the other person is the one who's 100% in the wrong. Paul says the law is for those who are dishonest. The law, this expression of God's character and standard is for the dishonest and the deceitful, Paul is saying. And as we get to the end of verse 10 and verse 11, we see that Paul gives a broader category for those that the law is for because of their lawlessness and disobedience. Basically, he's about to give us a broad category to let us know that even if he hasn't named the specific, a specific sin that you struggle with on a consistent basis, the law is still for you. This is what he says, picking up in the middle of verse 10. He says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, there's that phrase again we talked about last week, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He's saying the law is made for anyone that's ever done anything that isn't in accordance with sound doctrine. The law is made for anyone who's ever done anything that is contrary to sound teaching and sound doctrine. We said last week that Paul was willing to go to some great lengths to confront wrong doctrine. Here's part of the reason why, because not living a life that is in step with truth and sound doctrine is sinful. So if we as the people of God want to follow him and want to call others to follow him, then we must embrace sound doctrine. Otherwise, we embrace a life of sinfulness. I'll try to give an example. So some of you, as I was going through this list of the sins that Paul listed out here, if you were one that was sitting back thinking, I'm glad I don't do all these things, and you were looking down on other people who do those things, then you fit into this last category that Paul just created because you're not living your life with sound doctrine because you're being self-righteous when sound doctrine would teach you that you're actually as bad as everyone else. That our self-righteousness isn't living in accordance with sound doctrine. It's living contrary to sound doctrine, specifically the doctrine of the gospel of grace, which I'll get into in a few minutes. The law is for those who don't care for the downtrodden because that's contrary to sound doctrine that our creator is near the lonely and near the needy and near those who are trampled. The law is for those that are slow to forgive because that's contrary to sound doctrine that our God forgives every one of our sins if we place faith in his son, Jesus Christ. The law is for those that are riddled with worry who are riddled with fear when we feel out of control in our lives because that's contrary to the sound doctrine that God is both good and God loves you and God is completely in control of every situation and every occurrence that happens in your life. The law is for Christians that take absolutely no initiative to share Christ with those who don't know him because that's contrary to the sound doctrine that he calls us to be disciples that make disciples for his glory. The law is for all of us. The law is for all of us. This is Paul's point. It's for everyone because we are all sinners and we all live in a way that is contrary to sound teaching in many ways. Yes, the law is for you. The law that exposes our sin and shows us that we are lawbreakers. It is for you. It is for me. It is for us. The law that gives us accurate feedback about our sinfulness is for you. It is for me. Because, and I hope that we embrace this, because it's the thirsty person that runs after water the fastest. 
It's the thirsty person that understands their need for water and runs after water. And it is my hope that as we see the law and it reveals to us how sinful we are, we run to the one who is able to forgive sins fast and quickly and early and often and every day of our lives. Because it is the thirsty man that will consume the most water. And my prayer is that as we realize that we are the lawless and disobedient ones, that we drink deeply from his ever-flowing fountain of grace every day of our lives. Paul gives us this example of himself in, in this passage as we continue on in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. Apostle Paul here says that he is thankful to God. He is grateful for the grace and strength that he has received, that he is allowed to, to be in Christ's service, to actually serve him, even though he himself fits into the list of things that he listed just a little bit earlier as one who was not living according to sound doctrine. He's saying, hey, I've lived in a way that's not in accordance with sound doctrine as well. I've been lawless. I've been disobedient. And yet he has still appointed me to his service. And this is good news for lawbreakers like us. And praise God that Paul doesn't, doesn't stop there. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go through the, the rest of the, of the passage through verse 17. Then I'll come back through and, and highlight three observations that I made from these next four and a half verses. So we'll read through them and then get to some, some quick observations. So I want to pick back up. He says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Three observations from the last part of this passage. Number one, Paul saw himself as the worst of sinners. Paul saw himself as the worst of sinners. We saw that in verse 15 where he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He said, I'm about to tell you something that everybody should accept, that everybody walking on the planet should accept what I'm about to say, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. The law accomplishes purpose in Paul's life. Paul was more aware of his sin than he was of anybody else's sin. Paul is not saying, I used to be the, the, the chief of sinners or the foremost of sinners. He's saying, no, I am the worst of sinners. But before that, he gives the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to save sinners. That's actually our next point. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. If there's a Christianity one-on-one -on -one class, I don't know if there is one, but if there is one, this one's got to be near the front of the, in the front of the class. It's got to be at the head of the syllabus. It needs to be taught over and over again probably every single day. Jesus came to save sinners. The law had done its job in Paul's heart. He's not in denial of his sin. He's not acting like he's more righteous than anyone else. He's not saying that he used to be the foremost of sinners. He's saying, I, I'm the foremost. No one, he's more aware of his sin than anyone else's that he knows. 
And he celebrates that Christ came to save him and sinners like him. Praise God for the law that shows us that we need Jesus now and for eternity. Jesus came to save sinners. I want to read for us verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is how aware Paul was of his sin. He said, so he's, he's left to draw the conclusion that the reason that God actually extended this mercy to him is so that other people can look at his salvation and realize, oh, God's patience is perfect if he saved Paul. Oh, God's patience is perfect. It's everything that I need if he saved this man who was a persecutor of the church, who was a murderer of Christians. He's saying, God showed me mercy so that he can show it off. So he can just show off to the world just how patient he is that others might come to believe in him for eternal life. He said, man, God's just showing off when he saved me. I don't, know if it's any, I don't know if any of you watching this on Facebook Live or watching through the internet have the, same, have the same posture, have the same mindset that God was so gracious to save you that he was just showing off to the world, hey, I can save anybody. I can save anybody. I, I, I can come and redeem anybody. I can forgive anybody. This is what Paul is saying. Third observation, God's grace overflows. Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me. Can I go ahead and bring up the props that we have? I want to give an illustration because I would love for this to stick in our minds a little bit. So the law gives us an accurate depiction. The law gives us an accurate depiction of our sin. Thank you. The law gives us an accurate depiction of our sin. It shows us that we're not just a little sinful, but we've broken God's commands hundreds upon hundreds of times. It compares us to God and shows us that we have fallen short of his glory. So if you consider these cups to be us, ourselves, it says we've been angry and we've been violent. We've been dishonest. It says we've been immoral. It says that we have done things that are contrary to sound doctrine, that we have done evil, that we have done things that actually go against our God. Any accurate look at the law will have to leave us concluding that our lives are full of sin, that our lives are full of guilt. I don't know if you've actually gone through the Old Testament laws, but one of the things that stands out is, man, no one can measure up to this that I sin over and over and over again. An honest assessment of our situation in our lives is that our lives have been full of sin and that we are sinners. And oftentimes when we see how full of sin we are, for some of us, we look at ourselves like this, we see all the sin and we feel like we're ultimately defined by our sin. That our sin defines who we are. That when we see ourselves more than anything else, we see a failure. More than anything else, we see someone who continues to sin against God, who continues to sin against other people. For some of us, it runs so deep that now it just ruins our confidence, not just in ourselves, but in what God might even do through us. That when we look at ourselves, all that we see is sin. We don't see room for anything else. So we we arrive at the conclusion then that this is who we are. 
This is ultimately who we are. So I don't have any confidence that God's going to work through me to bring about health and flourishing and prospering in his creation. I don't have any hope that God is going to work through me, maybe in the, in the lives of the people that I'm in fellowship with. We don't have any hope or any belief that God will work through us to see his kingdom come and his will being done in the earth. Because when we look at our lives, this is what we see. And for some of us, because when we look at our lives, we see this. We tend to turn away from it and start to, be, to live in denial of our sinfulness. We swing the pen, pendulum to the other side and become real self-righteous because it hurts so much to look at our lives and realize just how much we have sinned. The law has done its work, but instead of running to Jesus, we, we run to denial of our sin. Instead of running to him to deal with our sin and, and forgive us of our sin, we run to just being in denial of it. And don't let somebody try to call us out on our sin. We are so busy trying to defend ourselves. We put more effort in defending ourselves against when we are rebuked. I know this is something that I do, that we could be using that same effort to just pursue God and pursue healing in him and growth in him. But we don't. We know that James 5.16 says that we should confess our sins to one another and pray for each other, but instead we hide it because we don't want to see ourselves like this. And so we don't want other people to see us like this either. We want them to see a more cleaned up version of us. We don't want them to see an accurate depiction of who we are. And some of us, it goes so far that now we have an insecure relationship with God. Because if when we look at our lives, we see full of sin, we believe, well, when God looks at our lives, he sees full of sin. And so we, we know the verses that, that God offers forgiveness, but we believe that he forgives us, but, he, but really he's more tolerating us than loving us. We believe he doesn't actually delight in us. He, he, he just, he's a father, so he has to accept us, right? He has to love us, but he doesn't like us. After all I've done, he's probably more disappointed in me than anything, right? I mean, after all the times that I have sinned against him, he certainly doesn't delight in me and treasure in me. He just tolerates me. He forgives me, but he doesn't really want me around. And yes, it's true that we are sinners, but praise God that that's not all we are. Sinner is only part of who we are because Jesus Christ came, died, and was raised from the grave. And so now he actually extends his grace to us. My sin is not the primary identifier of who I am. It does not define me. It is not the defining factor in my life anymore. And Jesus has grace for the angry and the violent. And Jesus has grace for the dishonest. And Jesus has grace for the immoral in us. And Jesus has enough grace for everyone who has lived a life contrary to sound doctrine. But here's the thing that you got to understand before you understand exactly what I'm doing here and exactly what Paul is saying, because you might have read what Paul's saying, but not really understood what Paul was saying. Paul is, that word when Paul says his grace overflows is actually a combination of two words that only occurs at this time in Scripture. We don't see it anywhere else in Scripture. The first word is, is tra the transliteration of it is hyper. It means more than. It means a little bit extra. And the second word is abundance or to have plenty. So he's saying that the grace of God is actually hyper abundant, that it is beyond abundant, that it actually overflows. He's saying that the grace that God has shown him is more than abundant for him. It was beyond abundant and it just overflowed for him. Paul isn't saying that God has all the grace and forgiveness that he needs. He's saying that God has more than all of the grace and forgiveness that he needs. 
To have an abundance is to have plenty. To have a hyperabundance is to say that you have way more than you need. See, God's grace isn't just barely enough for, for you to be in relationship with God, but he's saying he has an abundance of grace for you. That the grace and mercy and patience that he shows, it, it isn't just barely getting us there, but he has an abundance. He has more than enough. He has more grace and forgiveness than you know what to do with. Romans, Romans 5 verse 20 says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. No matter how much you have sinned, there is more grace in your, there is more grace in your God than there is sin in your heart. There was more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. I know some of us have sinned a lot, myself included. Christ is better at giving forgiveness than you are at committing sin. He is more patient than you are sinful. He is better at forgiving lawbreakers than you are at breaking his laws. No matter how much sin you have, he has more grace than you have sin. So if you're there and you lack confidence, here's a picture that I want you to have. Paul is not saying that God's grace flows. Paul is saying that God's grace overflows. So what Paul is saying, what Paul is saying is that for the one who struggles with our identity because we are so riddled with shame that now we lack confidence in ourselves, we lack confidence even more so in what God would do in and through us. He's saying God, God's grace overflows, that this is the way you should be understanding yourself as well as seeing your sin. For the one who tends to be like me and tends to want to live in denial of sin and turn away from it because I don't want to feel that shame, God is saying, no, 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 you're looking at the wrong thing. You're only looking at this when I have grace that overflows for you. I have an abundance. I have more than you need. Paul is saying for the one that has insecurity in their relationship with God, because they believe God is just tolerating them, because they believe God's grace only gets them to the point of God saying, okay, you can be my child now, but I'm, I'm still more disappointed in you than anything. He's saying, no, no, no. God's grace overflows to you. That is more than abundant for you, that even though you may feel like you're full of sin as the law reveals our sin to us, he's saying, but you need to understand that the grace of God just overflows. It's more than enough. It's more than you ever need. You can't contain all the grace that God has for you. And Paul concludes this section, and I'll conclude with this, of 1 Timothy, with the, with the fitting response of both seeing the law and the grace of God, both seeing how sinful we are and how full of sin our lives have been, as well as seeing the overflowing grace of God. And this is what he writes to conclude the passage. I find it to be extremely appropriate. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He breaks out into worship. He talks about the law and how it reveals to us how sinful we are. He goes into Jesus and his mercy and his grace and talks about how God just showed mercy to him so he could show off how gracious he is as his grace overflows to him. And then the next thing he says is, glory be to God. Glory be to God. The law can lead you to a couple different places. It can potentially lead you to feeling worthless if this is all you see. But if you have eyes that see his overflowing, overflowing grace, it will lead you to worship. So we can keep our eyes on our sin if we desire to do so. And oftentimes we'll feel worthless. We'll feel like we, we, we aren't actually who God created us to be. Or we can keep our eyes on his overflowing grace and mercy and patience with us which will lead us to worship. So that's the, the most fitting thing I can think for us to do after this sermon is just to sing a song of worship to God. So I'll pray for us and then we'll, we'll get together and sing.
Father, we are grateful for you. We're grateful for the love that you have shown us. We're grateful for the grace that you have shown us. We are grateful that when sin increases, grace all the more abounds. We're grateful that you have more grace for us than we have sin in us. Father, will you help us to not look at the law with disdain, but help us to see the law as good because it reveals to us who you are. It reveals to us your standard. But help us to look more at your grace than we look at our sin. Help our our eyes and our minds and our hearts be, be accurate in the way that we view sin and your grace. That we would live within the reality and embrace the truth that your grace is always, always, always greater than our sin. And Father, we ask that you would do this work in our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.